All right, Dave. So we've got the 1914 Eastern Front, but I wanted to tell you, I have I finished the audiobook of Barbara Tuckman's The Guns of August. Um, it's uh, 18 hours long, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I kind of loaded it on my, I loaded it onto my whatever Kobo device, whatever it is, and I started reading it, and then I kind of got the sense of the size of the book because I, I never, I don't have, I never had a, I never held a physical copy of the book in my hands, and the size of the book, I don't know, it's 800 plus pages, so then I thought. Oh, this is going to be hard in the next two weeks. So I got the audio. I found the audiobook on YouTube. The audiobook is interesting because the re- the guy who reads the audiobook, Dave, he does all the accents. Oh, right so on. When he does French, he does a French accent. When he's ta- when he's talking as a German, he does a German accent. And the weirdest one was when he was quoting Woodrow Wilson towards the end, and he switched to an American. His his accent as he reads is is English, and he switched to a switch to an American accent and I was like oh that was <laughs> that was abrupt and wow. you, you don't really realize your accent <laughs> until someone's making fun of it <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah you so Barbara talked about she's it's interesting too because she basically ends with the battle of the Marne yep yeah and but she does, there are quite a few chapters on the Eastern Front. So as you talk, I will be able to follow this time. Unlike when the when you were doing the Western Front last episode. Okay. Well, we'll go into detail, but maybe not as much as Tuckman does. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> All right. So we finished with the Western Front. At the same time, obviously, things are going on far to the east. So a little... Uh, Thumbnail sketches of the the rival states here. Uh, Austria-Hungary hadn't fought a war since 1866, uh, which they lost, of course. So they had a losing record, and they've had many years to reform, and they haven't used them all that well. Was was that against Prussia too? Yeah. So they're not not just it's not just that they've lost; they've lost to the same army they're fighting this time. Oh no! They no, that's on their side this time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness. Thank goodness. Uh, Two-thirds two of the soldiers were Slavs, uh, you know, Czechs or Slovaks or Croats or Slovenes. Well, uh, it's a good thing that uh, Trotsky was right and Slavic solidarity doesn't exist because otherwise... Well, there's <laughs> something going on with that. Something. Yeah. But but the problem is that while the majority of the soldiers are Slavs, the officers are mainly Austrian or Hungarian. Uh, and the officer class was particularly, uh, how to describe them? They Not lacked, academic? <laughs> Not well, academically rigorous? Okay, they weren't rigorous. They, they lacked <laughs> the super seriousness of, of the Prussians. So they're, they're more they're more the concerned table. with their yeah their their uh, tableware and and you know what's for dinner and making sure that their crates they're of noble. wine they're arrive. nobles. Yeah, it's all part of their noble and entertain self entertainment kind of. They're, yeah, they're kind of amateurish when they when they go to war. Uh, you can find details about this in a novel by Yaroslav Hasek. He wrote a book called The Good Soldier Schweik, uh, which I read. Uh, it, it's quite humorous. It's a bit of a, uh, it's like Catch-22. He, he's, you know, pulling, <laughs> he, he's shining a light on the sottish chaos in the Austro-Hungarian army. Uh, you know, the officers are mostly incompetent. The soldiers' morale is low. Uh, everything goes wrong. And Spike <laughs> just happily merrily you know goes through his career right. in the army it's this uh, it's this uh like a multi-ethnic uh because the austro-hungarian empire is this we've been talking about it for for years but it's this high it's a real hodgepodge right like it's just, and if you're imagining some kind of paradise of tolerance and everybody gets along it, not at all the the no. austrians don't no, trust disorganization yeah. well they don't trust the the lesser nationalities right nor right. do the hungarians so right. they look at them as 
dissidents that have to be watched. So spies and uh, agents provocateurs are scattered through the regiments, you know, to to find out who the bad guys are, the bad apples, and we can separate them. So that's not doing great things for morale either. Uh, the Habsburg Army's organization is is cumbersome. It's archaic, unimaginative. Uh, their training is outdated. Promotion for officers is entirely the prerogative of the emperor. So the center of influence and, and intrigue remains exactly where it's been for centuries in, in the palace. Uh, Alan Clark, this is a different Clark than the one we've been picking on for many, many episodes. Uh, Alan Clark says the Russians were opposed by a regime almost as inefficient as their own. <laughs> the Austrians had six armies, uh, about 1.8 million men, and they had two plans. Plan B for the Balkans, uh, three armies would be deployed against Serbia. But in case of uh, war with Russia, plan R, uh, one of those armies would join the other three in Galicia, which is the... Uh, basically part of uh, Ukraine and southern Poland that Austria controls. The chief of staff was Konrad von Hotzendorf. We've mentioned him before. He's uh, a a hawk, and he finally got the war he wants. Uh, He's hardworking, uh, lived a Spartan life, and he's a firm believer in the offensive, like so many of the First World War generals. But he was better at playing games on a map than he was at commanding real troops. Uh, they just didn't listen to him, kind of. No, he is listened to. The problem is that he's drawing up plans on a map without, mm, you know, knowing logistics. the human material that he's yep. commanding, and yeah, and logistics and terrain and like real things. He wanted to attack Russia early before their mobilization was complete. You know, it's going to take months for the whole Russian army to be gathered, so he wants to attack early. Uh, he's going to command that front then in Galicia. And he puts General Potiorek in command against Serbia. Now, Potiorek we met before in the episode about the assassination at Sarajevo. He was the military governor of Bosnia who took no precautions when Ferdinand, Franz Ferdinand and Archduchess Sophie uh, came to visit. So he's another Spartan, but he's vain and incompetent. Only powerful court connections saved him from being blamed for the assassinations. So he's in command of the second front. The Serbians had about 190,000 men. Marshal Putnik uh, had three armies. Each one is only a little stronger than an Austrian corps. Uh, On the plus side, the men are largely veterans of the Balkan Wars. Uh, They're also uh, inspired by intense patriotism but they're lacking in heavy artillery. Well, for Russia, manpower is no problem. Their their population of 167 million is, you know, considerably higher than anybody else's. Uh, but if you could imagine bad roads, uh, not enough railways, you know, incredible distances, poor communications, uh, low industrial output, Poor standards of education, uh, low low literacy rate, and uh, a grudging treasury. So later on, it's going to be uh, revealed that much of the Russian economy depended on manual labor. So when they send millions of men to war, they did tremendous damage to their own economy. And at, at a really basic level, like feeding people. Like the U.S. Civil War, right? Like the Southern, they, they always said that the every slave that left the South to join the North counts twice because they're taking one agricultural worker away from the yeah. South and adding a soldier on the other side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the officers and the non-commissioned officers, the corporals and the sergeants, were largely uneducated. And the NCOs were largely illiterate. Now, they had some able and energetic leaders but boy was there a lot of deadwood uh social dropouts failed landowners um and a word that you don't hear anymore but placemen (laughs) like 
like politicians. These are guys that just find them find their place in the army. Uh, they kiss the backsides of their superiors and, and just insert themselves and stay. And then at the highest levels of the army, you have the court favorites. Uh, they had elite cavalry regiments that looked superb uh, on parade, but they paid more attention to dressage and, and their splendid uniforms than they did to modern tactics. Senior officers never retired. They just hung around the barracks gambling and drawing full pay. And the staff college was full of idle young aristocrats who treated it like a college residence. They spent their time, you know, drinking and, and carousing. So when you compare this to, you know, the uh, <laughs> the German uh, army and high command, it's pretty different. And then you have the large mass of, of the peasantry who are being conscripted and called up, and they don't fully understand why. Right. <laughs> but they just passively and time patiently <laughs> follow orders. Yeah, do what they're told. Weapons and equipment were in short supply. Ammunition reserves were low. They were relying on the quantity of men that they could bring to bear rather than on the quality of their units. So a Russian division had 16 battalions, whereas a German division had 12. But the Russians' fighting power was about half of the German. They just didn't have the same amount of weaponry and their ammunition was very limited. So mobilization is going to call up three million men and three and a half million more will be arriving before the end of November. They would have uh, 30 army corps, 95 infantry divisions and 37 cavalry divisions, which is a real high proportion of cavalry and reveals, you know, basically a lack of understanding of what modern war is going to look like. Um, but only 52 of these divisions would be ready by the 23rd day of mobilization. So do you wait till you have your entire army or do you attack with what you've got? Well, because of pressure from France, the Russians have chosen to attack with what they had rather than wait for the rest of their manpower to arrive. So they have two armies, the first and second, that would face Germany and three that would face Austria. And they had one more army in reserve which could deploy against Germany, so that's their plan G, or against Austria, uh, plan A. It all depends on whether the Germans attack France. And as we know, they did. Sure did. <laughs> so that means that there will be two armies against Germany and four against Austria. General Sukomlinov was the minister for war, and boy, what a character. <laughs> he was uh, corrupt, suspected of being pro-German, and a total reactionary. He boasted that he hadn't read a military manual for 25 years. <laughs> this is the minister of war proclaiming his ignorance. Uh, he was greedy, uh, driven by the demands of his wife. He'd married a woman 30 years younger. Um, and she had expensive tastes, so he needed to uh, increase his income. So in addition to his garden variety corruption, he sold information. One of his customers was an Austrian agent. So the Minister of War is selling military information to the enemy. So here's a story. <laughs> this is from uh, Alan Clark, his book, Suicide of the Empires. Uh, about the level of corruption in Russia. So a French businessman uh, is seeking a contract to supply 10,000 tents to the Russian army. So in order to get the contract, he knows he has to place bribes in the Ministry of War. So he bribes the low official, he bribes the medium official, and he finally gets to the highest point, the minister's personal secretary. And it's in that guy's office that the order would be signed. So the private secretary insisted on a personal gratuity, which was as much as the businessman had already spent in bribes. It would basically double the bribe expense. And he, and he said, I, I can't, you know, I can't yeah. pay you that much. It'll eat up all of the profit. I won't make any money on the deal. Yeah. 
And the secretary said, ah, I understand. But why deliver the tents at all? <laughs> right. Whether whether true or not, it's a pretty good illustration of, uh, you know, the level of corruption that that's just siphoning off so much money, so much equipment. Uh, the the commander in chief was Grand Duke Nicholas. This is the Tsar's uncle. He was six foot six and apparently a very uh, imposing <laughs> man. Uh, and he was also a champion of reform. But Sukomlinov uh, hated him and opposed him. And the Tsar was jealous. He didn't want his uncle having too much popularity. So uh, Nicholas never got a major command in the war against Japan which worked out to his benefit because, you know, everybody who fought there, basically their reputations were ruined. Uh, even now, they're keeping him from uh, the campaign against East Prussia. That's going to be led by General Zielinski. Now, if you have the ability to look at a map of 1914, most of Poland belonged to Russia. North of it, though, is that arm of uh, East Prussia and the city of Konigsberg and the port of Danzig, now Gdansk. Now it's now it's Poland, and now part of it is a little Russian enclave uh, around the former city of Konigsberg. But this means that Poland is uh, a salient. It it juts between. German territory in East Prussia and Austrian territory in Galicia. It could be a springboard for an invasion of Germany, of Silesia, or it could be a deadly trap if the Germans and Austrians attack from north and south. You know, you could have Russian armies trapped there. So the plan for East Prussia, this is German territory. General Zelensky has two armies, the first under General Rennenkampf, and they're supposed to drive directly east towards the fortress of Konigsberg. Second Army, led by General Samsonov, is going to operate south of the Missourian lakes, uh, quite a few lakes there. Uh, so that's between them. So if the Germans try to defend against either army, the other can swing around to take them in the rear. So for the first two weeks, those two armies are going to be too far apart. They're going to have to both advance and then try to trap the Germans between them. But the, the lakes are going to play a big part. On the other side, you have uh, Lieutenant General von Prittwitz, the German commander of 8th Army. He was a court favorite, well-connected enough to resist at least two attempts by Moltke to have him replaced. Uh, Moltke was worried about the East. We mentioned it in the, in the last episode. He's also worried about Pritwitz. He doesn't trust him. He categorically ordered him not to retreat into the fortress of Konigsberg. But he also gave him orders not to let his army be overwhelmed. Pritwitz had three corps uh, facing Rennenkampf's army and a fourth corps defending the approaches south of the Missourian lakes. Uh, this basically should have guaranteed a German defeat because you're outnumbered in both both places. Uh, one of the German corps commanders, General Francois, uh, was very aggressive. His corps was recruited almost entirely from East Prussians, so they're defending their home uh, territory. So he started a battle against Renenkampf, against heavy odds. Uh, the Germans, uh, sorry, the Russians pushed ahead anyway and Pritwitz counterattacked. This is the Battle of Gumbinen, uh, and one of the German corps was badly mauled. Germans suffered heavily from Russian artillery fire until the Russian guns ran out of ammunition. This is a pattern that will be <laughs> repeated. Uh, so between this defeat and news of Samsonov's army advancing south of the lakes, General von Pritwitz lost his nerve. He telephoned Moltke, explained that he had to retreat behind the Vistula River to save his army, and that would mean surrendering all of East Prussia. And even then, he would need reinforcements. So Moltke acted decisively for once. Pritwitz was recalled, 
and Major General Eric Ludendorff was sent out to be Chief of Staff. I think um, Ludendorff in, in uh, Barbara Tuckman's book is like some kind of fixer. They're always sending him here and there to uh, to solve some problem. He he, I think he came from the Western Front to that's right to, to do this, and then he ended up going back. I think. Yeah, I think he was involved in uh, bringing down the Belgian fortresses on the border. Yeah. You're, oh yeah. <laughs> you're you're right. He's a troubleshooter. Yeah. And, and you'll hear the name again. Yeah, he's considered a rising talent. But he's too junior to command an army. So they called uh, a 68-year-old general out of retirement. This is General Paul von Hindenburg. And if you've heard the names Hindenburg and Ludendorff before, they their careers are going to uh, dovetail, and they're both going to be around after the war. <clears throat> so the two men met for the first time at the train station that's going to carry them out there. Uh, they don't know much about the armies they're in command of. They don't know the situation that all that well. Just know that it's trouble. Uh, <laughs> um, luckily, go ahead. Wait, did, uh, the other thing, I don't know if we emphasized enough the, the gigantic guns that, that the Germans brought to the Western Front to destroy the Belgian fortresses. Did we talk about that at, at sufficient length? Because Barbara Tuckman talks about that a lot. Oh my gosh, she likes the big guns. It's true. Yeah, they, they, they had to disassemble the guns, and they wouldn't fit on the railways, and they had to bring them, drag parts of them by horse, and the Belgians were just helplessly watching while the guns were being assembled, and then the guns just blew the hell out of the fortresses, which they didn't think were, were, uh, you know, they thought the walls were so thick that that couldn't be done. Anyway, right. back back to the east. Sorry. <laughs> Well, here's where the German staff system uh, paid off for them. There's a staff officer named Colonel Max Hoffman. He was under Prittwitz, and he knows his commander isn't going to do this, so he worked out a plan to save the situation. German staff officers were granted considerable leeway, and their suggestions were often taken seriously. So, you know, despite the, the arrogance that you might expect from Prussian generals, they weren't too arrogant to take a good suggestion from a staff officer. Um, Hoffman was aided in his plan by Russian carelessness. In fact, it, it goes beyond carelessness. It, it's appalling, really. When it came to using their radios, much of the time they were broadcasting messages in the clear, sometimes because they couldn't figure out the code. Or sometimes they were too lazy to use it. Alan Clark says that two of Sansonov's corps had different ciphers, so they couldn't understand each other's code. So they just basically spoke over the radio in the clear. They also used the exact same frequency at the same time every day. Do you have that... Um... Do you have that quote from Tuckman where one of these German commanders uh, would would go and listen every day, every evening to the Russian broadcasts? And one evening when they were late, he got really, really upset. And he he wrote to someone either in his journal or, or a fellow German officer. He wrote, basically, our greatest ally is is the Russians because yeah. <laughs> our greatest ally is our enemy or something because they tell us everything they're going to do and, and everywhere they're going to be. At the same time of day, at the same frequency. It was, same. it was child's yeah. play to listen yeah. in. The Russians also didn't have much uh, aerial reconnaissance. So in the last episode, that we had a couple of cases of you know uh, aircraft flying over and, and seeing where the enemy army is and reporting it to the generals. The Russians didn't have that advantage. Uh, most of their aircraft were on the Austrian front, not sure why. Uh, plus, the range of the planes was only about 70 kilometers. So that's too short to be of any help to Sansonov because they're taking <laughs> off from too far back. Also, Russian pilots were leery of flying over their own troops because Russian soldiers fired at anything overhead. <laughs> Tuckman says that, uh, that, that Russian troops couldn't believe that such a, such a contraption as a flying machine could be anything but German. That's, yeah, they got so an cool. inferiority complex when it comes to the <laughs> technical stuff. High tech, yeah. Yeah. So basically the only information from aerial observation showed that the Germans were retreating from Renenkampf. 
And Rennenkampf announced his intention to stand in place after the Battle of Gumbinen, partly to allow his supplies to catch up and partly to allow Sansonov to to catch up. Major uh, lost opportunity in uh, in Tuckman's book, which is that, you know, he didn't follow follow the, the Germans. Yeah, if he had been more aggressive it could have been really awful for the germans as it is yeah. he he just stops and stays yeah. there but he tells samsonov on the radio so the germans know he's not going to move yeah samsonov tells renenkampf that he's going to arrest his troops on august 25th and that means he's not moving so hoffman started shifting german troops he took most of the troops opposite renenkampf left only a screen behind and used German railways to rush the, the, the German troops south of the lakes. Uh, Adrian Gilbert, another historian, says that Hoffman was aided in his plan by his experience as an observer in the Russo-Japanese War. He had uh, encountered Renenkampf and Samsonov, and he knew that the two Russian commanders hated each other. So his reasoning would be that Renenkampf would be unlikely to rush to Samsonov's aid. Yeah. So there's an irony at, at work here. At this point, this early Russian offensive has succeeded in its objective. Yeah. To take the pressure off the French because Moltke mm-hmm. panicked and tinkered with the Schlieffen plan again. He withdrew two infantry and one cavalry corps from the right wing and sent them to East Prussia, where <laughs> where they didn't arrive in time anyway. Yeah. So if you remember the gap between von Kluck and von Bülow's armies on the Marne, the gap that the British marched into, if there had been two infantry corps there, you know, yeah. the miracle of the Marne maybe doesn't happen. Yeah. So the Russians have succeeded. They've taken the pressure off the French. They don't they don't realize that yet though. Uh, this is going to lead to Tannenberg. Tannenberg is pretty famous in uh, German history because it's where the Teutonic Knights were defeated by the Poles and Lithuanians back in, goodness gracious, 14, 14 something. <laughs> it's just that. That's all you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one Sam- of my battles. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's important. They remember this stuff, so it's a significant name, and it's going to become significant for a different reason. Samsonov resumes his advance, and he put his head directly into the noose that the Germans are preparing for him. Zielinski has no idea that Samsonov was in danger, and he didn't order Renenkampf to move south. When Samsonov first realizes, wow, there's a lot more Germans here than I thought there were supposed to be, uh, and he's starting to see the danger. He sent a message to Zielinski asking to change the axis of his advance. And Zielinski replied, to see the enemy where he does not exist is cowardice. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, That's uh, not very helpful. That's, yeah, <laughs> real bad, bad management there. I yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the Battle of Tannenberg was fought between August 26th and August 29th. Three Russian corps were caught in the trap. Uh, German guns did terrible damage. Where yeah, the Russian this is where the artillery and that there's a lot of quotes from uh, before this battle of from like I think all the way up to the Tsar saying, you know, this the the war depends on this. This was some elite Russian unit, I think that was not going to give way no matter what, but the artillery was just too much for them. It was absolutely yeah. too much for them. Yeah. And these guys aren't in trenches either. Yeah, that's right. They're not in trenches yet. And and where the Russians had artillery of their own, they, they quickly ran out of ammunition. Yeah. On the night of the 29th, Samsonov understood the full extent of the disaster. Uh, he went off into the woods and shot himself. There's a a debate about the number of Russian casualties. Uh, Two corps were essentially obliterated. Uh, One was drastically thinned, and two more were reduced to the level of divisions. 
the Germans captured 100,000 prisoners and hundreds of guns. Not much ammunition, but... So this is a decisive tactical victory, mm-hmm. which cost the Germans a much greater strategic victory in the West. So Because they moved those men. Right. So Tannenberg, Tannenberg's very shiny, looks great, but strategically, it, it's not that awesome a win. Uh, Hindenburg and Ludendorff now shifted to attack Rennenkampf, who had stayed put. Uh, this is known as the Battle of the Missourian Lakes in September. Rennenkampf managed to escape with his army, although he lost another 100,000 men. The invasion of East Prussia, then, is a costly failure. The Russians lost 250,000 men. Uh, Zelensky tried tried to pin the blame on Renenkampf, but it was Zelensky that was dismissed, and Renenkampf stays put because of his court connections. So you reward failure. Oh, boy. Uh, Meanwhile, we'll switch to Galicia. So this is the front where the Russians and Austro-Hungarian armies are facing each other. Uh, Conrad assumed that the Russians would be in Poland, so he launched most of his armies north. The Russian commander, Ivanov, expected the Austrians to attack from Lemberg. Lemberg is the old German name for Lviv, Ukrainian city. So Ivanov is waiting with the bulk of his forces off to the southeast, So both of them are wrong, and it leads to a a lopsided front. So something to to mention here, the railway network of Western Europe virtually ends here. Oh, yeah. And this is um, there there was another issue that Tuckman talks about, which we've mentioned before, which is the Russian gauges and the um, and the German and all of the Western like the German rail gauges are different. Right. So once the Russians cross into East uh, Prussia or, you know, into German territory, their rail, their rolling stock, they don't have any rail cars and they have to try to take the rail cars. But the Germans, of, of course, have taken all the rail cars west to, to yeah. move yeah. their army. So, yeah, there's all kinds of funny. Oh, and the other thing, uh, Dave, that, that was big in this uh, war, I think the Russians and the Germans and the French, everybody experienced it, which is like. Uh, a lot of difficulty communicate communicating uh, right. like with telegraph yeah. the telegraph lines taken down and um, you know radio not working the way they expected with their um, in their war games yep so there's a lot of uh, more there's a lot more friction I guess uh, fog of war kinds of things going on than they've anticipated with their high-tech Right. That that's a good expression for it, the fog of war. In that respect, it's like the wars of a hundred years earlier. Yeah. Where yeah. where you have to find your enemy. Yeah. <clears throat> and you do it by reaching out with cavalry, you know, just sending them ahead to, to try to locate the enemy. And then and the the uh, great empty spaces play a part here but too. But then your you can use your cavalry to stop his cavalry from finding your army. That's called a cavalry screen right and the french on the western front there was a lot of complaints from the french about how good the germans were at cavalry screening so the french couldn't find where the germans were often maybe that's probably the case on the eastern front too oh it's it's even worse (laughs) uh the armies are are wandering in search of each other they they end up straddling each other's lines of communications they they encircle the enemy successfully and then find out that they've been encircled themselves. Right. Uh, and the opposing forces could often see each other maneuvering, or at least they could see the clouds of dust <laughs> where the enemy is moving. But uh, here's a little a short quotation. Poor gunnery, ammunition shortages, and plain stupidity allowed <laughs> such movements to go unpunished. And the front line was never as solid as it was in the West. There's there's simply not, you know, a man time. every yard. Yeah. There's there's empty spaces between Army Corps. And so an attacking force could advance 50 miles. 
And then they usually stalled, but it was for lack of supplies because they don't have trains to bring it up. You know, now you're bringing them up on, you know, mules and horses and wagons. So it's a pretty archaic looking war at first. And I mentioned that the two <clears throat> the two Russians and Austrians were in a lopsided situation. Conrad's really happy with the first results. His his uh, his armies moving north are are making great progress. Well, of course, because there's no Russians there. So he reinforces his left wing and he orders a third army to attack north from Lemberg, from Lviv. So third army does and they march right into Ivanov with the bulk of the Russian forces. And the Russians, just some lucky timing, were in the midst of preparing to launch their own attack, but from the east. So General Brusilov, a name we'll see again, uh, you know, while the Austrians are marching north, he's moving west and smashes into their exposed flank. So Third Army obviously falls back in considerable disorder. And now there's a gap between the Austrian armies that's pretty huge. And Russian Fifth Army just came bursting through. So to escape being encircled and completely destroyed, Conrad had to order a general retreat. So everybody retreat which turns pretty quickly into uh, what one historian called pell-mell flight. And the whole Austro-Hungarian front collapsed. Uh, 300,000 men were lost. The Russians captured Lviv, and they cut off the great fortress of Chemisel. I, I actually looked up how to pronounce this one because P-R-Z-E-M-Y-S-L. Turns out that's Chemisel. And another 100,000 Austrians were trapped there. This is a, a, a disaster. N not only are the Austrians reeling, but they've now opened the way for the Russians to drive into Silesia if they want. Uh, Silesia is a, a province of, of Germany that, that, well, it's now Polish. But, uh, boy, it, its importance goes back to Frederick the Great and Maria Theresa and all of that. But that's, you know, Germany now wide open for a Russian invasion. Uh, Hindenburg and Ludendorff called for reinforcements for German troops. But the war minister, Falkenhayn, wouldn't release any more men from the Western Front. So he's vetoing Moltke, you know, taking any more at a critical juncture in, in the war on the Western Front. Yeah, that's pro that was probably wise. Well, in the end, I don't know that it made all that much difference. It didn't matter, yeah. Uh, so Hindenburg stripped East Prussia of four of the six army corps to form a new army, the Ninth Army, and that one goes down to support the Austrians. So with all that's going on in France, the French are once again crying for help from the Russians. Yeah, yeah, I know about Tannenberg, but we really need help. <laughs> so the Russians, okay. Despite their massive losses, they're going to launch another major attack uh, against the Germans. Now, despite Russian losses, there, there is there is an anti-war party in the Russian court at this point, and they're kind of the czar's just kind of like it's a matter of honor that we have to continue to support our allies, right? That's, yeah, I remember this kind of debates from Tuckman's book and the stubbornness yeah yeah despite the results we're gonna carry on and, and God will sustain us so new troops are arriving in in large numbers remember the Russian mobilization is is slower so they now had more men than they had had in August uh, Ivanov regrouped his armies but Hindenburg struck first the Germans are aiming at Warsaw and Russian reinforcements are going to continue to arrive through these battles. In fact, they're, they're coming from as far away as Siberia uh, after a month on the trains. So uh, Japan joined the war on the side of the Triple Entente. And that means that there will not be a repeat of the Russo-Japanese War. So they can afford to strip some of the troops from their Far Eastern Army and bring them back. So after a month on the trains, these guys basically disembark in Warsaw and they can go straight into the fighting. 
uh, Conrad refused to help even when Ludendorff appealed to him. So Ludendorff went over his head, asked the Kaiser to make a personal request to old Emperor Franz Joseph, and that didn't work either. But the Austrians were finally goaded into action and almost immediately ran into trouble. Uh, you know, their morale is, has been shaken by the early collapse and they're just as incompetent as the Russians. So that, you know, that's not going well. Uh, the Germans intercepted an Austrian message ordering the Austrian First Army to retreat at once but not to tell the German Corps on its left until 6 p.m. So we're going to leave them holding the fort <laughs> while we retreat. Uh, not great cooperation between the Allies. With the Russian armies on his front growing, Hindenburg decided to pull back. So now Ivanov is ready to launch his own offensive. He's got four armies. Renenkamp's first army is protecting his northern flank, but he's going to attack with four armies. But... Once again, with staggering negligence, they broadcast their intentions over the radio in the clear. Uh, German 9th Army, now under a general named von Mackensen, was able to speedily redeploy by rail and take up a blocking position where the Russians had said they were coming, between Posen and Thorn. And uh, the Germans launched a, a preemptive, a spoiler attack. And they hit the juncture of Renenkamp's first army and the reconstituted second army. And Renenkamp's troops were badly strung out, so Mackensen just brushed them aside. And the Germans then ripped into the flank of second army. It's a rather unlucky number. This is the army that was destroyed, Samsonov's, at Tannenberg, been reformed. And the Germans are going to try to encircle it again. So the Russians changed the direction of their advance. They sent 5th Army to try and encircle the Germans in a trap of their own. Neither trap was able to fully close. But in December, the Russians began to withdraw, and the Germans captured the city of Lodz. So the, the second Russian offensive aimed at Germany uh, basically was throttled, cut off. And, and, and the... the consequence of these big battles is that Russian reserves of material uh, were seriously depleted. They've still got the manpower, but they've used up an awful lot of the equipment and ammunition that they started the war with. So now we'll go to the, the Serbian front. Uh, I don't know if Tuckman mentions Serbia in her Guns of August. Not much. Uh, no, no. Hardly at all. Yeah, it seems to be the forgotten front. So uh, Beograd was the only national capital that sat right on the border. It was directly across the river Sava from Austro-Hungarian territory. Uh, the Serbian strategy, well, they didn't think they could defend it against uh, Austrian artillery. Now, if, if the Austrians had known that the Serbs weren't going to defend it, they could have occupied the city right away. Conrad, of course, looking at his maps, has a much more complex plan. So he aims to attack from the northwest and the west, split Serbia in two, and capture their only munitions factory at Kragujevac. Uh, he has two armies, about 400,000 men, and he estimates it would take 14 days to completely destroy Serbia. There are <laughs> two, two problems with his plan. <laughs> Uh, yeah. his, map, his maps may not have shown what the terrain looked like that he was planning to attack across. Uh, around Mount Ser, there are some rocky clefts. Uh, it, it's pretty rugged territory, not, not so easy to uh, attack into. Also, remember who's in command, General Potiorek, who's incompetent. So Austrian 5th Army crossed the Drina, this is Serbia's western border, and immediately came under heavy fire uh, from Serbian defenders who have all the benefits of excellent defensive terrain. Uh, after two days, the attackers have taken heavy casualties, and they're nowhere near their objectives. Austrian 2nd Army, coming from the north, uh, they join in, but they're also halted by what somebody described as natural bastions of rock. 
So Pechorek lost his nerve and ordered a withdrawal. And like some of the Russian generals, he was saved from disgrace by uh, powerful connections at court. So he argued that he was just regrouping for a, <laughs> a second offensive. So <clears throat> he has two armies rather than three because the, the third one was transferred to Galicia. But he attacked again. This time the Austrians used their superiority in artillery. One Serbian division, counterattacking, uh, was caught in the open by Austrian guns and lost 5,000 men. Wow. But once again, the Austrians made you know no better progress than they had the first time. And this, this is where General Putnik found that the southern end of the border was only lightly defended. So he sent a pretty daring counterattack with two Serbian divisions aimed at Sarajevo. And this panicked Patiorek. He broke off his offensive to go chase these two divisions through the woods and hills of, of Bosnia. So they regrouped and in November launched a third offensive, uh, preceded by a heavy bombardment. Serbian troops were forced back into the mountain passes. Uh, the roads were apparently choked with refugees. And the Serbian government claimed that the Austrians were committing atrocities. So I looked some of these up. Uh, they're pretty horrific stories of, you know, civilians being murdered, uh, rape, uh, you know, even dismemberment in some cases. And some of the stories are substantiated and some are, hmm. I mean, I think of Belgium. So did atrocities happen? Yes. You know, were nuns being raped and babies thrown on bayonets? No, those are exaggerations. Yeah, yeah. And also remember the uh, the Carnegie report from the Balkan Wars. Uh, yeah. The Serbs had committed some pretty <laughs> frightening yeah. atrocities of their own. So, you know, there's a I, I'm a little suspicious that maybe they're just getting their claims in early. So yeah, were there atrocities? I think so. Are they exaggerated? Yeah, I think so too. Well, it, yeah. I mean, there there was a chapter, the the chapter on the Germans in Louvain was, I think it was a whole chapter in uh, yeah in Tuckman, and it was interesting because it 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 was also like part of their doctrine, right? They were just like, we must terrorize these people so that they know not to mess with us, and it just, right. no matter how much it didn't work the the germans just took that as like a well we we aren't doing it hard enough right yeah. so, so yeah. it just kept getting worse and worse and you know the, the way that he uh, i mean he the way that barbara tuckman puts it is um you know it's like that was a major a major propaganda loss for them it was a major uh you know, it, it was bad for American, like American support for Germany. It was bad for, Eng you know, it made England more implacable against Germany. Mm -hmm. So it was, yeah, it was a major deal. But it was also doctrine. Like it was very specifically like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do mass reprisals against the civilians. And we're going to, that'll tell this, teach the civilians to, uh, you know, be obedient. And that's what's missing here. It's not a matter of doctrine. However, remember all the ethnic uh, yeah. hatreds that are here and, and the composition of the Austrian army. So it's certainly believable that there would be uh, yeah. extreme acts. And again, it's really troubling that, you know, the war is being aimed at civilians increasingly. So... Uh, General Patiorek believed that the fighting was just about over and the Serbs would only be able to muster guerrilla bands from here on. Uh, Hungarian cavalry regiment was sent to capture Belgrade. And on December 3rd, the Serbs launched a desperate counterattack. Uh, this is contrary to what the military textbooks say you should do, but maybe because it was so unexpected, it completely broke the Austrian lines. But by the invaders were retreating back the Sava. Uh, there was an official pronouncement from Vienna stating that difficulties in provisioning had necessitated a withdrawal. <laughs> so they lied. 
And General Potiorek had been relieved of his command at his request on the grounds of poor health. Yeah. So the Austrians suffered over 100,000 casualties, left behind dozens of guns and stocks of munitions. Uh, The Serbian army suffered too. They lost more than half of their best troops. And they had another problem besides, uh, you know, war casualties. Typhus broke out and was apparently raging not only through the army, but through the crowds of refugees. And this is going to be a pretty significant uh, outbreak of disease. So the consequences of all the fighting on the Eastern Front, are they're, they're rather far-reaching. Um, yeah. So Serbia is going to be celebrated because they fought off, you know, the Austrian bullies, uh, brave little Serbia. But... You know, it's a landlocked country, and the only way that they're going to be saved is if they can be supported. And there's only one way for support to reach them, and that's through the Greek port of Salonika, and then by rail up the Vardar Valley. So now the Allies, the Entente powers, begin a campaign to bring Greece into the war on their side. And while the Greek prime minister, Venizelos, is interested, the king is not. (laughs) The king of Greece, don't forget, is a German. uh, And he's got a healthy respect for German forces, so he doesn't want to mess with them. Fighting the Turks? Okay. Fighting the Germans? Mm -mm. Mm-mm. Austro-Hungarian losses? Catastrophic. In addition to losing so many men, the officer corps, the Austrian officer corps, had been decimated. And these guys are largely irreplaceable. They just don't have trained officers to take the place of these guys that have been lost. The Russian army suffered too. Uh, One historian says they were dreadfully mauled. Sounds very British, doesn't it? The Russian troops, uh, ill-equipped and undersupplied as they were, were remarkably tough. But courage and endurance can't prevail against German firepower. Yeah, they had. Uh, they talked about like their bayonets that are like twice as long and stuff. There was all these all these peculiar things about the Russian troops, but mm-hmm. the artillery disadvantage is so so big, and logistic the lines of supply and. Kind of organization, all the organizational elements were not there for them. Yeah, yeah. The German superiority in artillery was decisive time and time again. The the Russian supply system was corrupt and inefficient. Uh, Russian artillery was starved of shells. And and Sukomlinov and, and other high officials are the ones responsible, but they kept their positions and they continued to profit. Yeah. The Russian high command was inept. Their officers largely indifferent and incompetent, and it's the peasant soldiers who paid the price. And you mentioned it before, but after the battles of Tannenberg, Warsaw, and Lodz, the Russians have developed a pretty healthy inferiority complex vis-a-vis the Germans. They they know they can beat the Austro-Hungarians, but they're just not confident against the Germans. It's also the prototype, like the Russian army here is just like the prototypical giant with feet of clay, right? Like mm-hmm. it's huge numbers of men, but they can't exactly bring those men to bear because they don't have the the logistical and organizational and technological elements in place. Well, you would think that a disaster on the scale, disasters plural, on the scale that they've suffered, would lead to some kind of organizational shakeup. It didn't. Yeah. Now there's there's one coming though. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is going to contribute to it, right? Rather than show some flexibility and reform, they they just stubbornly stick to the way that led us into these disasters. Well, guess what's coming? More disasters. Arguably the greatest. Organizational shakeup, maybe yeah. in human yeah. history. I don't know. Yeah. So the Schlieffen plan failed because Moltke panicked. But now Hindenburg and Ludendorff are essentially in command of the whole Eastern Front. 
and they come to believe that the war could be won here, that Russia could be decisively defeated. You have a deadlock in the West. They're all digging trenches and digging in, but there's still mobility here. There's a war of movement. Also, the Germans have to prop up their Austrian ally, because if Austria-Hungary collapses, Germany's southern flank would be exposed. And and here, this this eastern front, Germany's goal is is basically to get Russia out of the war. That's that's what Hindenburg and Ludendorff say. Yeah. But Falkenhayn <clears throat> is the minister of war, and he's now chief of staff because Moltke had a nervous breakdown and, and was sacked. Falkenhayn, though, believes the opposite. Russia is too big, too vast. So he's remembering, you know, Napoleon and uh, that experience. Chasing a victory in the east is a mirage. The decision would be in the west. So he refuses to release troops to reinforce the eastern front. So once the Schlieffen plan fails, once Germany doesn't manage to win the war in the first few months, obviously we need a a new plan. So Hindenburg and Ludendorff, they want the troops because they like winning and they want to win in the east. And Falkenhayn says, no, the war is going to be won in the west. And this this problem, (laughs) this dilemma for Germany is the one that, you know, von Schlieffen could see years before. Everybody could see. How do you win a two-front war? And, and, well, yeah, and now that you – so, I mean, this is so interesting because at this point – at this point already at the end of 1914, nobody got what they wanted, right? Like, Russia attacked but was unsuccessful. Um, Germany tried to knock France out and failed. Uh, so what? How? How are they gonna win now? It's it's not even like clear what it means. Like, well, they're gonna end up, you know, uh, splitting their efforts. Yeah. Uh, just you know to to leap ahead a little bit having to save austria having to prop up the austro-hungarian empire means the germans have to take on more of the load in the east and hindenburg and ludendorff uh are both tremendously popular because of tannenberg their names are on everybody's lips they're they're more po- hindenburg is more popular than the kaiser you can argue that that's not difficult, but <laughs> but he's seen as like, you know, Papa Hindenburg. And uh, those two men are going to use their influence at court to undermine Falkenhayn, to, to basically campaign for their strategic vision that we can win in the East. And when you try to fight in two directions, doesn't yeah, necessarily go well. They're completely bogged down in the West now, right? Right. All right. Happy New Year, 1915. (laughs) Yeah, Happy New Year. Here we come.